When we were younger, we learnt men the way other people learnt languages or the violin. We did not care for their words, their mouths moving on the television, the sound of them out of radios, or the echo chamber of them from phones and computers. We did not care for their thoughts. They could think on philosophy and literature and science if they wanted. They could grow opinions inside them if they wanted. We did not care for their creed or religion or type, for choices they made and the ones they missed. We cared only what they wanted so much it ruined them. Men could pretend they were otherwise, could enact illusions of self-control, but we knew the running stress of their minds. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, November 13th, and today we are headed to the Fens with our guide, Daisy Johnson, author of the recent Grey Wolf publication, Fen. Set in the Fenlands of England, Daisy Johnson's Fen transmutes the flat, uncanny landscape into a rich, brooding atmosphere. From that territory grow stories that blend folklore and restless invention to turn out something entirely new. Amid the marshy paths of the fens, a teenager might starve herself into the shape of an eel. A house might fall in love with a girl and grow jealous of her friend. A boy might return from the dead in the guise of a fox. Out beyond the confines of realism, the familiar instincts of sex and hunger blend with the shifting, unpredictable wild as the line between human and animal is effaced by myth and metamorphosis. With a fresh and utterly contemporary voice, Johnson lays bare these stories of women testing the limits of their power to create a startling work of fiction. Johnson was the recipient of the 2014 AM Heath Prize and currently lives in Oxford, England. Her short fiction has appeared in the Boston Review, the Warwick Review, and other publications. It's a treat to be meeting her today. How are you doing, Daisy? Very well. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Thanks for coming on. Tell us about the Fen. What it, where, where is this and, and what, what is its history? So it's um, a bit of land on the east coast of England. And I grew up there, so I kind of spent my teenage years there. And what really intrigued me about this land was that so it all used to be underwater. It's uh, below sea level. It's very, very flat. Um, and at some point in history, the land was, um, all the water was pumped away and it was made into farmland. So the earth is really, really dark. And that kind of image stayed with me um, of this being a place that used to be covered in water and is now not. And I thought that was an intriguing sort of land to write about. Do they call it like not a landscape, but a manscape? Did I make that up? Oh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well. So when when did they pump the water away? Oh, I couldn't give you the exact date, but a long a long time ago. So actually, it's the, it's actually a land that would never flood again because they've got such um, sort of good, um, you know, flood resources there. But kind of, I think what's so intriguing about it is um, so it's got this very very dark earth and then a very kind of white sky and a very big sky. Um, yeah. And then, like, how big is this landscape is the other thing I'm curious about. So, kind of depends on who you ask, I suppose. Not massive. Um, 
So I guess particularly compared to the US, it's quite a small area. And then at some point you sort of reach the sea. Um, yeah. What town typifies this area, would you say? So there's a town called Ely, um, which is sort of in the middle of the fens. And it's called Ely, apparently, because um, they used to fish for eels there. And then in the stories you speak about a canal and estuaries and things, is what, where, where is that? The estuary is made up. Um, but there are, from, from my memory, so it's all kind of just taken from what I remember as a teenager, but I do remember there being canals around there. Uh-huh. Um, and there are lots of, so I now live in Oxford. So a lot of, some of the canals came from Oxford where there are, you know, so the Thames runs from London and then comes to Oxford and there are sort of like an interlacing of canals around here. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, one of the reasons why I was attracted to your book was just this, uh, coincidence that historically my family comes from that area too, but, All right. uh, Where, do you know whereabouts? Well, maybe a town called Scampton. Okay. I haven't heard of that. Okay. <laughs> but is it, is Lincolnshire the area? Um, so I grew up in Cambridgeshire, um, but Lincolnshire is near there as well. Um, so Cambridge is kind of the beginning of the fens, I would say. And then from Cambridge to the coast, there's sort of like a narrow band, which makes them up. Okay. But then it's, it's just a really flat landscape with this dark, dark earth. Yeah. Okay. And so then the other thing coming from the U.S. is that there's a tradition of literature, the King Arthur tradition, where there is this kind of people are in reality but at the same time there's this magical underpinning where where things don't behave in a literal sense is this kind of a mm. an english tradition or or um so you know your stories behave in a similar manner where where they're not strictly literalist or realist i guess yeah so I suppose, firstly, it's probably a magical realist tradition. Um, but when I was writing fan, I was reading a lot of short stories, and I found that same kind of thing you're talking about there. Um, but t- yeah, particularly in American stories. So people like um, Kelly Link or Karen Russell, um, where they're about people like us or people we could know having very ordinary lives, but also um, the stories are kind of infiltrated with this strangeness. And for some reason, short stories seem a really good place to experience that. Well, short stories are so interesting because I I feel like the good ones are more like poetry than they are fiction or not. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So there's just so much density in in a really good short story. Yeah, I think that's true. They're sort of, um, I guess, snapshots in that same sort of way that poetry can be. But I'm wondering how how one works on those differently than say a longer work where the compression isn't necessarily as important yeah so i can only talk from my own personal experience but i think i think people must work on them differently because it is such a different um you know i think you can obsess you can obsess over a short story in a way that you can do with a novel but you know if you've only got four thousand words and every single word has to be 
perfect and every single sentence has to be crafted and there can't be any slip-ups and there can't be anything. I always think the best short stories, you could go through them and you couldn't take anything out of them. You know, there wouldn't be any extraneous characters or extraneous events. In that same sort of way with poetry, I think, that if you had, um, yeah, if you had like a mistaken beat, then you would really notice it in a short story in a way that you perhaps don't do in novels. What is, what is your, your process and your practice? So I tend to, I think I stole this idea from Stephen King. He always says that um, he comes up with um, a scenario first. So, for example, um, vampires take over a town. And particularly when I was writing Fen, that's sort of what happened. I'd come up with um, something weird that was going to occur in the story. So, for example, the first story is um, a girl turned into an eel. And then my process seemed to be starting to write them and then rewriting them and rewriting them. So often the first drafts are completely different from the final drafts that appear in the in the collection. And so how many times do you think you work through each story? It depends on the story. Some of some of them maybe maybe ten times, um, and some of them less. Some of I've just written a story that came very very fast, which which I found really surprising because that's not normally how it occurs. And I found I think this is the same process the way I write novels. Um, so the novel I've just finished, I maybe have rewritten from scratch seven times. Wow. Well, what 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 about readers? So my thought is that your stories, there's so much going on. It's a such a fully formed, dense world that it's not like something that you need to read and get to the point of. It's something that you kind of need to inhabit. And so I feel like each one needs to be read a couple times. That is what people have said to me. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what I do with my, I don't know about you, that's what I do with my favorite short stories is, you know, you carry them around in your bag and then you do keep reading them and you do see different meanings and different depths hidden behind it. So I hope that's what I've achieved rather than, you know, confusing readers. Well, I had an experience once where we went to a, a reading with Mary Oliver, the poet, and it was hard because uh, she was just reading poem after poem, and that she wasn't. There was no pause between, and it just felt like it was too intense to go from. Yeah. And that's how I feel about short stories, where I have to, after I read it, I have to sit with, I have to sit with it for a little while. I can't just start into another one. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm curious about how, what kind of responses you get from people who want the magical part to be strictly metaphorical and they can interpret it, or if they're willing to like be able to take these things both ways, where some of the some of the symbolic things definitely, I I, I think you know perhaps there's this uh, mm. statement, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be that entirely. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. So uh, that I've always found it really interesting what readers think is happening. Um, and some people think really strongly that it is only symbolic. I try and not um, point either way. Certainly when I was writing it, I wanted to, um, I wanted it to feel as if these things could possibly happening, be happening. But I also think that as a writer, once you once you write a book and it's published or, you know, put online or um, given to anyone, then it's sort of out of your hands. 
and the reader can think whatever they want to think, which I think is kind of what is quite exciting. Yeah, and so David Lynch is unwilling to even discuss his own personal insights or why, you know, if, if there is a meaning, he doesn't want to share it because he doesn't want to taint his viewers. Right. Do you, how, how deeply do you share your own inspirations or the meanings that you're trying to convey? I think I share, um, I would share, you know, where the ideas came from and what I thought while I was writing them. Um, but I think he's probably right in that um, you do, maybe something is taken away from the reading if you think the author meant one thing and then, you know, the director and then the you think another thing. I think Margaret Atwood always says that, you know, once you've written it, it's sort of out of your hands. And I quite like that idea. Hmm. Well, I kind of have Twin Peaks on my brain because they came out with another <laughs> season this summer. But So it's interesting because in that situation, David Lynch is the director and he's taking these characters and, and giving them life on the screen. But Mark Frost is a, is a writer and he was the co-creator and, and he wrote a companion book where he takes the detail level of every character to this remarkable degree where you really know a lot about them. And then after sitting with the characters like that, you realize, well, I don't know that I need all those details, but from a, a writing standpoint, it's interesting because, you know, maybe like a, an artist needs a working um, relationship with anatomy so that when they do sketch something, you know, they it, it reads realistically. I'm wondering how much how much detail do you need to know about your characters, even though you're not necessarily going to write that much detail in the story? Do you know, you know, just everything about everyone? Or do you think it matters? I don't know everything about everyone. <laughs> I think I probably, because I'm such a rewriter, I probably know more about them than the reader does because of how much is edited and cut out. But I know some writers have, um, yeah, you know, um, kind of massive chunks of um, notes where they ask their characters questions hmm. um, and kind of interrogate them. And that's never how I've worked. Um, I think, interestingly, I've actually, for my birthday, got The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer. <laughs> I don't know if you've got that over there, by Jennifer Lynch, uh -huh. which I'm really excited to read, yeah. And I guess when something becomes as cult as Twin Peaks does, then you want to know all of that as a as a um, reader. But I don't think it's, for me, it's not necessary as a writer. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the, I guess, the fun of the mystery is that these things are happening that you can only speculate about you there's there's not necessarily an answer mm, yeah well so in in the united states right now we're having kind of a, a strange moment where where the patriarchy is definitely under attack i'm i'm wondering it seems like your book is a really uh situated well for the moment do, do you have any sense of what's going on over here yeah, um, it feels kind of a momentous time. And I guess uh, for us, you know, Harvey Weinstein was kind of the first and then it's sort of happening over here as well that more and more um, women and men are being able to come forward. Uh, yeah, I hope that my book 
fit doesn't fit in with that but you know um when I started writing it I wanted to write from the point of view of characters who aren't always don't always have a voice um yeah yeah it's hard to say anything about it I guess isn't it it's all quite you know it's quite hard to look at the news every day but I hope that this is a good thing that it means more people can talk about what's happened to them and that um there's sort of an overturning of everything yeah, it seems like the story that seemed really poignant to me was uh, Salma. Which one is that called? And Isabella. Which one? It's uh, she's riding her her bike through stoplights. Oh yeah, um, how to lose it? How to lose it? Yeah, because that's that kind of situation where it is. Is she 14 years old or 15 years old? Yeah. 14, I think she is. Yeah. And it just seems like... So that's... I don't know. How do you have the... A conversation about sex and becoming sexual beings, but then you know empowerment and not being preyed upon by by men yeah i think so i think that story probably came from a story that i'd heard from somebody um not all of it obviously but and my feeling in writing this book i guess was just that i wanted to write about things that people didn't normally write about so um, I'm not sure that, you know, teenage girls' first sexual experiences always gets um, discussed. And that's why it appears so much in this book. Yeah. I wonder... Yeah, it, I'm just so curious how how this moment continues to play out, whether or not... I mean, the most recent thing I saw was that Gal Gadot, I think the star of Wonder Woman, is now put that movie on hold until they find a different producer. Uh, okay, that's good. Yeah. Well, it's just... So, he, it, from, a, like, a mythical standpoint, you have Wonder Woman saying this movie's protecting... You know, this is about female empowerment, and then we can't have a producer that preys upon young females in charge of it. Yeah. And it's great, I suppose, that she now has that power... Um, you know, they're not going to do the film without her. Um, and she's using it to do that. Yeah. Well, so what about, I mean, so nature is a really important part of your writing too. There's such a, just a, you get smells and then also textures. It's, it's just so earthy. Mm. Is that your childhood or is it just you're you're crafting this kind of embodied experience yeah so that was really just about um what it's like to grow up somewhere rural i think so we moved around a lot when i was younger but we always lived um in the countryside and i think there's something there's something quite odd about growing up in the countryside particularly you know before you can drive um if there aren't any buses or any trains and kind of being trapped in this place so i think a lot of it probably is for me kind of a muscle memory yeah of smelling 
um, you know, the fields and the wet earth. Um, and what I always notice about the countryside is that it's so quiet, you know, you can hear everything. So in the night you hear the foxes and the rabbits. Um, and I really wanted that book to feel as if the land was sort of overwhelming the characters. Mm-hmm. How many people... So in the countryside, is this like little farmhouses or actual little tiny communities of a couple thousand people? Yeah, so there are lots of little villages, but also, yeah, houses on their own, set on their own. Um, so I visited the U.S. for the first time this year, and it was really interesting talking about Fen there, because I think for you, being in the wilderness means something so different from us, because we're such a small country. Mm-hmm. Um so you can feel like you're in the wilderness even if you know you're only half an hour or 20 minutes from a big town. Whereas over there, you have such vast spaces. So, yeah, they really interested me. What about, are there any um, historical works of fiction that are set in, in the Fen that are works of uh, English literature? So the really famous one is um, Waterland by Graham Swift, which I um, read bits of as I was writing this. And there's more, I think there's more now. So um, the most recent one was The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry, which is a historical novel kind of set around that area um, and is about a weird creature that they start seeing and it's kind of about um, the beginning of atheism and things like that. So then you, you say you were reading United States short stories or American short stories partly, and that was the inspiration for um, your work. What are you reading these days? So at the moment, I'm reading um, Her Body and Other Parties. Have you read that? Uh-uh. Who, um, who's this? Which, um, it's Carmen Maria uh, Matado. And it hasn't come out over here yet, but I managed to get a copy. And that's short stories. That's um kind of very weird short stories again about kind of female sexuality at the moment i'm also reading um rereading stuart dybeck uh who's a short story writer i really like another american short story writer do you have a sense of how big the short story reading public is over here do you mean but just in general i just wonder it seems like people that read short stories definitely appreciate good writing more more so than necessarily people reading longer form fiction or do you think I'm just making yeah that's interesting yeah I don't know (laughs) I think people are still really resistant to reading short stories you know I once I was once asked what I did and I told um this person who'd asked that I wrote short stories and he was very sniffy and said oh I don't read short stories and I think a lot of people are like that they've kind of got a bit of a barrier against short stories so maybe yeah so maybe the people who do read them are bigger readers in general I think it's getting, fingers crossed, more people are starting to read them. So there are so many, you know, big short story competitions. We have a really big one over here called the Sunday Times Short Story Competition, which is a a £30,000 prize. And then you over there seem to have so many, um, you know, like magazines or websites that are publishing short stories. Um, And I think also kind of the rise of the short story of uh, creative writing classes means that writers when they start out, begin by writing short stories. Mm. Well, it makes sense that like MFAs would utilize that form because 
it it just seems so much more in depth. I mean, so if you're focused on, like you said, where every sentence counts, you can't. Yeah. You you can't. You have to go through each one and really edit to its maximum uh, length. I think I, I yeah. I've heard Anthony Doerr, the, the, that writer, complain about how it it used to be possible to just make a living writing short stories that the oh, magazines yeah. would pay well enough that you could actually make a living being a short story writer. I I don't know if that's the case anymore. It definitely seems like the, there's a larger audience for for novels. Yeah, I don't think that is the case anymore. But um yeah, I think often short story writers um you you know are kind of expected to uh write a novel if they're going to write short stories and then have to write a novel. Um yeah. Some I I'm not going to remember her name now, but it seems like sometimes there's short story collections that end up becoming a novel because each each uh what was her name? Welcome to the Goon Squad. Oh, Jennifer Egan? Yeah. I don't know if that's that's just the one that's tickling me right now. It seems like they do play nice. The idea of a short story is kind of like a chapter in a, in a book, but at the same time, they're quite different too. Yeah, and I think, um, so what I liked about, uh, I think it's actually different the way it's published over there where you are, but um, when, it was pub- when Fen was published here, I think the publisher made sure not to write on the cover if it was short stories or a novel. And I kind of like the idea of maybe the definitions breaking down a bit. Yeah. Well, so you said you you had finished your novel. Yeah. When when is that coming? Yesterday, in fact. Yesterday. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's uh, coming over with you in autumn next year. And can you speak a little bit about it, or is it under wraps until it comes out? Uh, no, I think I can probably talk about it. So it's about um, a young woman who um, is living alone and sets out on this journey to try and find her mother. And as she does, she starts remembering more and more about the strange childhood she had growing up with her mother, which was um, living on a boat on the river. Um, and it's kind of a story about how our language makes us the way we are and uh, so it's also, so my original reason for writing this book is that it's a rewrite of the Oedipus myth. Hmm. So again, it's set in kind of a very rural place. Um, I think there's probably a lot about gender in there, but it's also a mystery. It's kind of as this woman tries to find out what happened and also find her mother. And is it similar to Fen in, in the the density of the the chapters, the stories themselves, or...? Do you feel like it's completely different? I feel like it's completely different. It's certainly been a very different um, writing experience. So Fen took maybe a year, um, and this has taken four. And it's uh, so it's not chronological. It kind of moves around through the different times. I feel like it's a very different um, reading experience from Fen. Hmm. What about your writing practice? Is it something like, and this is something that comes up on the the show a lot, whatever people's practice, you know, it's like how they interact with the universe, uh, what, whatever it is. Do you write 
when you have to write or do you write every single day at a certain time or how does that work for you? When I'm writing, um, I try and write every day, um, but that doesn't normally work. Um, so I'm quite a fast writer. Um, so my first drafts come really, really quickly. And then, as I said, I'm a rewriter. I, I think I wish I wasn't. I wish I was a very tidy first drafter. But I'm, I, yeah, I tend to be that I write very, very fast um, and then have to go back and rewrite it all again. And this happens a number of times. Um, I've tried, since I've become a full-time writer, I've tried to write just during the week and have the weekend off because I really found that, you know, I'd come back on a Monday um, and the writing would be a lot better for having some time off and just reading and thinking about it. Yeah. Can you write in the at night or is it all in the morning or is it the midday? Does that matter? I've never been able to write at night, but it's kind of all just all through the day. So kind of just from waking up um, and then I stop. So my partner has a job out of the house. So I stop when he comes home. Um, and I quite like trying to do it like that, you know, have a structure where I start at nine and finish at five. And, um, and it rarely works that way, but I like having the idea behind that. What about distractions? So I quite like distractions. So I have a study, but I also write a lot in cafes, um, you know, on trains. I think it's a really good thing to train yourself just to be able to write anywhere, particularly as, you know, you start to have more events and things um, or teaching or and you can't be in the house as much. And then it's something that I recently recognized when I started sharing an office with a bunch of people is that I tend to edit stuff out loud. I don't, you know, where I, it, I want to hear the actual flow of the words. Do you, oh, yeah. do you keep it all in your head or do you, uh, do you go through and, I mean, sometimes if a sentence is really good that I'll actually read it out loud myself just to hear it when I'm reading. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really helpful thing to do. Um, so what I finished yesterday was reading the whole novel through one more time and it was kind of extraordinary. The things I'd missed reading it just by eye. Um, you know, there were some sentences that rhymed, um, or repeated words on a page that you couldn't really hear, um, that you couldn't hear when you just looked at it. Um, and as you said, if, yeah, having a, writing a really good sentence and then reading it out sometimes seems to get you back in the flow of it. What did you, what, did you say what the novel is called? It's called Everything Under. Everything Under, okay. I think that's the same title in the US, um, uh, but that's the title here, and I don't think they're changing it. Mm-hmm. And it, is it coming out sooner there, probably? Yeah, it's coming out in June here. Hmm. Well, then, do you? What about your inspiration? Do you know, so do you know your next three projects, or do you just kind of let you know the moment dictate what it is that you're working on? I know the next book, um, which is a horror novel. Um, set in um, a small cottage in Wales. Um, I think a lot of the inspiration comes from places I've been, um, you know, that's where Fen came from, um, or things I've read, or so the horror novel I think has come from, um, I was born on Halloween, so kind of grew up watching The Exorcist and Carrie, 
So I've always really wanted to write a horror novel. Um, yeah. What about, so the interesting thing with your writing is that there is kind of this other otherworldliness to it, this quality of, and then it's almost timeless. And so because it, it taps into this larger English tradition is the way I felt, when when technology intruded on it, it almost felt strange because for whatever reason in my head, you know, you're you're in a landscape that is almost timeless. You, mm. What, you know, what do you make of that? Where, and then, you know, what about technology, and how does that inform your writing? Right. So I guess firstly, I'm really glad that it came across as timeless because that's something I really set out to do. Was that, um, you know, yeah, as you say, in some of the stories, they have mobile phones or they're using online dating sites right. um, and in some of them it seems like they're just on a farm and it could be any time um, and I wanted to sort of make that make it feel like this could be happening to any of us any time in history I find it really hard to write about technology in books because I think it just change it just changes the way your characters interact doesn't it and um, if you have a character living in contemporary times and for example, they're trying to find someone, all they have to do is go on the internet. So I'm interested in it, but I think it's going to take me a while to get used to writing about it. So then you you mentioned you, you have the, it's it's fascinating that you would have the, the diary of Laura Palmer. Because, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so that I, I didn't really think about it, but that is this, this strange supernatural story that is, it's both where the the surface the surface of the story is that Laura Palmer's father is abusing her but then there's also this supernatural element of the the um, am i spoiling this um so i've only seen series 1 um, <laughs> um i've still got series 2 and the new one to go um but no you're not spoiling it okay yeah, but I mean, so there is this supernatural element that Bob, I mean, who, what's really going on in this town and, and what, what's the nature of this? Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, is, is this, and then I think it came out about the time that you were born, actually. Um, so uh, what is it about Twin Peaks that attracted you? First, I suppose, so I came to it relatively late, but everybody I knew had seen it. Um, uh, it's one of those things that's just sort of set in our culture, isn't it? So people would have Twin Peaks parties or they'd like dress as Laura Palmer. So I came to it kind of knowing how much it had already influenced. Yeah. Um, and then once I started watching it, I think it was, it just, it has a tone that's different from anything else that has ever been on TV, I think. Um you know, that sort of, so like some of the dialogue is almost quite funny. And just the, how I think always with David Lynch, how incredibly weird he allows things to be. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, in a way that no one else really does. He's quite happy with just, um, and he makes normal things weird, I think, in that way that we talked about with short stories. So, you know, kind of the repetition of like the cherry pie, which is repeated so many times, it kind of becomes really odd, um, like an odd refrain. The where, where when I think of David Lynch, I always think of the see that scene at the beginning of Blue Velvet, where I think it's Blue Velvet, where the um, there's the man um, hosing his lawn, um, 
who then has a heart attack and the camera kind of moves through the very, very green sort of beautiful American town grass and under the earth you see all kind of the dark, um, you know, all the insects moving and things. And I always thought that was quite a good metaphor for what he was trying to do because it's all kind of about just normal people but then sort of the, what the darkness of what's going on beneath their lives. Yeah. The interesting thing too is that how things change too. So Laura Palmer is definitely 17 year old, 17 years old and she has affairs with you know, a handful of men in it seems like everyone was involved with her. But um but then later when Mark Frost is rewriting the story, I think he changes her to 18 just because we're really uncomfortable with that now. The you know this idea of the the young girl and the older man. Yeah, interesting. Um, I think what's so interesting about her as a character is that she comes across to begin with so so sweet, doesn't she? And she's got her uh, she's got her like one sweetheart, and then kind of the more you find out about her. Um, but I think, you know, she's um, she has a quite she's quite an authorial character. I think she's always sort of she always seems to be in charge of what she's doing, as far as I've seen of the series. But it's interesting that they felt they should change the age, um, which I think is probably a good thing. Yeah. So then, what are you working on now? So I'm working on the horror novel I mentioned, which is um, my third book. Um. So I've done a first draft and I'm just working on the second draft. Okay, well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Great, thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, talking. You bet. You've been listening to Jay-Z Johnson on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio on thesyncbook.com. Be sure to check out her work, to which we'll link. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all of the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And she could not stop thinking of the traffic lights, of riding a bike tall enough for your legs to trail, of riding a hill too fast to stop if you wanted to. At the base of the hill, you can see the lights turning red.